Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're seeing uh, the federal government over the last number of years moving forward with a number of solely environmental-focused acts that are having an impact on our ability to continue to produce what, in our case, is some of the most sustainable products that are relative to their competitors that are anywhere in the world. You just heard the Premier of Saskatchewan when he was on with us on the 5th of November. Interestingly enough, Guy Fox Day. And uh, the Premier starting to talk to us about why uh, he introduced the Saskatchewan First Act. Well, we're going to speak now with the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, as our guest. And this whole country has been talking about the Alberta Sovereignty with a United, within a, a United Canada Act. That's a mouthful. Premier, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, I'm, I, I just have to spell this out. One of your responsibilities as Premier is to, with your government, steward a cooperative relationship, or at least not a constantly antagonistic relationship with Ottawa. That's the, uh, that's the mandate of every Premier. Before we speak about the specifics of the Alberta Sovereignty within a United Canada Act, Are you of the view that the Trudeau government and certain federal liberal cabinet ministers actively engage to undermine the well-being of Western provinces, and specifically Alberta, and with no regard or little regard for provincial opposition? You know, I believe in cooperative federalism, and there have been some areas that we've been able to work very well with the federal government, even recently, if you want the truth. Um, We were quite pleased to see that when we went to COP27, that they respected that they can't make carte blanche decisions about our natural resources, that it's against the Constitution. I think that's fantastic. They also, we have a a similar pricing program of our industrial emissions in Alberta, similar to what they have in Quebec, and they accepted that as being equivalent. So there are are ways in which we do cooperate, and I'm I'm pleased to to make sure that we can do more of that. But, But the problem that I have seen in the last number of years is the unilateral actions taken by Ottawa that have canceled projects, chased away investment. And and the, the, the problem is they, they don't stop. Um, I, I quite agree with Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Why in the world, when we're in this uh, energy security crisis, food security crisis, why would they come out with a ridiculous emissions target to reduce fertilizer by 30% by 2030? Why in the middle of our leadership race would, would Guibault have started a consultation to reduce emissions specifically on oil and natural gas 42% by 2030? The, these are the kind of things that antagonize Albertans. And that's the reason why we want to get back to some kind of cooperative federalism. Don't just blindside us with things that are outside your jurisdiction. Let's have a conversation about how we can move forward to reach uh, uh, these kinds of objectives that we share jointly together. And I, I feel like Ottawa has been a bad actor in a lot of cases. And I'm hoping that with the Alberta sovereignty within the United Canada Act, we can get back to cooperative federalism. Okay, so the answer is yes. That the federal government, this one, and cabinet ministers actively do engage to undermine the well-being of Western provinces, and specifically Alberta, and perhaps with no no regard for provincial, for provincial opposition. They might now, with uh, Premier Moe's Saskatchewan First Act and, and your Sovereignty Act, but it just seems to me, and uh, obviously seems to you, that they've run roughshod over Western Canada. 
And they they sure have. I I think that's undeniable. The reason why there has been so much anger in my province is that we have tried to re-engage with the federal government a number of different times in a number of different ways. And they they keep on coming at us and keep on targeting our industry unfairly. And and that's what we've got to stop. If, If Ottawa wants to play a constructive role, then they've got to treat provinces the same. They can't have a special deal for Quebec. And then treat the rest of us with uh, with a heavier hand. I, I think that, that unfortunately, I mean, people are perceiving this as us taking an aggressive action. This is a defensive action, is that after seven years of being constantly at the at the end of federal of federal legislation and edicts that have, have caused so much harm in our province, we've said enough is enough. We've got to reset this relationship. And I, I'm looking forward to, to seeing if the Ottawa will respond positively to that. So clarify for us please, what Bill 1 contains, as far as your cabinet's options are, to change law without legislative approval beforehand, as I understand a resolution, would be uh, would identify the difficulties Alberta has with federal legislation, would be brought before the legislature, which would then recommend a redress, perhaps not unanimously. But correct me if I misunderstand, Premier, cabinet under the Sovereignty Act would not be bound by the redress decided on by the legislature. And that is an issue of debate and concern. What's this? What's the story here? The, the issue and, and the intent of what we're attempting to do is to affirm our rights under the Constitution. And we've got our division of powers in the Constitution very clearly laid out that we've got exclusive areas of jurisdiction over natural resource development, over how we run our social programs, um, over even being able to manage our, our own conservation strategies. There's a, it, there's a whole range of powers that we have that the federal government continues to intervene on. And we're just saying, don't do that anymore. We're going to aggressively defend our constitutional areas of jurisdiction. We want you to treat us just like Quebec. Now, in, in Saskatchewan, part of, of the way they want to, to do this with their Saskatchewan First Act is to put the question to a tribunal that's sort of outside the legislature. It was important to me that if we're going to take any action under this legislation, that it has to be affirmed by the MLAs in the legislature, debated thoroughly. And what we were intending to do is to get pre-approval on certain changes so that we could uh, delegate the implementation to cabinet. I think that um, one of the things that we've got to make clear is that if there's any statutory changes, those have to come back to the legislature. And so those are the kind of amendments we're talking about next week, just a couple of minor fixes. But the intent remains the same, that we're going to work aggressively to make sure that Ottawa respects our areas of jurisdiction and gets back to treating us in a cooperative way, which they haven't done in the last seven years. But your attorney general said during a news conference this week, this past week, the cabinet will have the power to amend law through an order in council. How is that being cooperative with a legislative uh, uh, decision to redress? You know, it does get into uh, into the weeds a bit, but there, there's a, there's about five different ways that we create law in our country. One is through statutes passed by the legislature. Other is through regulation, which is done by cabinet. Others are through ministerial orders, which is done by a minister. We also have policies and directives, which are done at the bureaucratic level. And so our intention was never to try to have cabinet unilaterally write the first type, those statutes. Statutes always have to go back to the legislature. That's what parliamentary supremacy and legislature supremacy is all about, is that if you want to create the framework for doing something, it's got to be fully debated in the legislature. And I I think that was a little unclear. Um, And so we're going to clarify that with a couple of amendments next week. Okay. Now, the Trudeau government has, of course, 
been rightly criticized for orders in council and decisions that it's made arbitrarily. And I just think back to 2020 when Mr. Trudeau decided that his then finance minister, Bill Morneau, would have access to taxican spending and other liberties without any parliamentary oversight for two years. That was one of the initiatives. Of course, they, they repealed that or pulled it back when there was tremendous public uh, outcry, but they also didn't provide a budget in uh, 2020 after spending the country into hundreds of billions of dollars of deficit. So, so the, you know, the model for this kind of behavior exists in Ottawa. You just don't want to have it in your province, right? Oh, 100% we don't. That's why the entire process begins with a legislative debate. That's why I wanted to make sure that rather than have an independent tribunal or have these decisions made by cabinet, it's got to be debated in the legislature first. And we'll we'll make sure that we make those amendments so that no people know that if there is any legislative change that needs to be done, it'll come back to the legislature. That's how our country is supposed to work. I, mean, I, I find it remarkable, actually, that uh, we, we, we have seen a suspension over the last two and a half years of any functioning um, elements of our democracy. Our parliaments haven't worked. Our Senate hasn't worked. The oversight of the courts haven't worked. And I, I feel very strongly, people will know that during the campaign, uh, at how frustrated I was that our constitution's being run roughshod over, our charter of rights and freedoms is being rough, run roughshod over. I certainly won't do that. The legislature is paramount. It's important that any decision that we take under this act gets, a, gets affirmed by the legislative assembly. That's why we've structured it that way. Premier, would you speak to the issue that provincially funded organizations or entities like police forces, municipal government, school boards, can be ordered, I understand, by Bill 1 to refuse federal laws if Cabinet identifies such legislation as being harmful to the interests of the people of Alberta? Municipalities, and some of them actually, uh, some of these organizations receive monies from both your government and the federal government, and it places them into a difficult situation. Uh, Could you uh, clear that up for us? Sure. I can tell you a couple of examples where we've got a real problem with the federal government having passed unconstitutional policy. In Bill C-69, we've called it the No More Pipelines Bill. But if you look at the act, there's a reason all 10 premiers are intervening with us to try to get that bill overturned. It's because the federal government has come into our province and they have are dictating to us that we can't do any major project that they identify as being federal in nature. So for instance, I think it's important for us to build a highway between Grand Prairie and Fort McMurray. We don't have one. And yet the, the federal government has said that any highway longer than 75 kilometers becomes their jurisdiction. That's the kind of thing I'd like to be able to say, you know what? Grand Prairie, Fort McMurray, and the, all the municipalities in between, we've got to build that darn road. The other issue as well is around uh, power plants. We we have built significant power plants in our province. Yeah, City of Calgary, for instance, they've got a wholly owned in uh, uh, a power company called Nmax. They recently built an 800 megawatt power plant, natural gas, cleanest uh, and and best of most efficient technology, right next to the border, so that we could reduce transmission line costs. And now under the federal act. We have to get federal approval if we build a power plant larger than 200 megawatts. I want Calgary and Edmonton to be able to, under their regulatory environment in Alberta, make their own decisions if they need to have additional power. But how Those do you are extra- the kind of things how, that the federal government has intervened how do you extract them from? Again. How do you extract them from that situation where they feel caught between uh, the devil and the deep blue? This is why we have to, to fight this out with Ottawa. I, th- I think that when, when, when we start pushing ahead on the things that we normally used to do prior to this legislation, that's when we're going to have to, to battle this out in court. We're putting a shield up and saying this, this is inappropriate. And we, I think we'll have more success as we identify these projects that we want to move on. And, you know, again, I would hope in the spirit of cooperative federalism that we would say, hey, you know what, we want to build this highway and we want to add this power plant. 
Um, are you going to let us do it without elevating it to a federal level? And they should say yes, but they shouldn't have given themselves that power in the first place. And that's those are the kind of that's the the restart of this of the discussion that we need to have. Okay, so you fired a shot across the bow of the federal government. What are you expecting from Mr. Trudeau uh, in, in response? Well, I'm glad to hear him say that he doesn't want to pick a fight, and and I think that's good because they picked a heck of a lot of fights with us in the last seven years. I I, I hope that. Do you believe that? The, Oh my gosh! Absolutely, I do. No, no. Um, do you believe he's not? He doesn't want to pick a fight. Oh, do I believe that he doesn't want to pick a fight? Uh, I'll I'll watch and see. Um, I think it was a, a a sign of goodwill when they didn't sign on to the COP twenty seven communique calling for the phase out of oil and natural gas. I think that was a very positive sign, and mm-hmm. it's positive that they're accepting our industrial emission strategy as uh, being com- compatible with theirs. But but look, we're about to have a biodiversity conference in. Um, in uh, Montreal in the middle of December. And they have put forward, once again, an aggressive target of wanting to have 30% of land base in protected area by 2030, essentially taking our land base out of production, essentially overriding our ability to control our resources, once again, a violation of the Constitution. So so I, I feel like I will, I will have to judge on the basis of the actions that they take as opposed to the words. But this is why we are putting this front and center this is the reason is because they continue to to act as if they control our resources. They continue, as Scott Moe said in the clip you played, to use the pretext of environmental issues to assert themselves in the management of our resources. And that's not appropriate. And that's why we're, we're pushing back against them. Let that's me move. Scott. I'm sorry. Let me move to healthcare for a moment. Number one issue to Canadians, no matter where you look in the country. We have a badly broken healthcare system in Canada, and perhaps a popular misconception that healthcare is managed under national jurisdiction. It isn't. Well, some of it Not is. Not at all. Yeah, but it's yeah. provincial. Do you foresee, if you're elected to serve beyond next spring as the premier, do you see an Alberta healthcare model which is significantly different to what is found in most healthcare reeling Canadian provinces? I have said that all the changes we are going to make will comply with the Canada Health Act, and that means it will be universal. It will be accessible. It will be comprehensive. It'll be portable. It'll be publicly administered. I'm not. I'm not going to violate those those principles because I think we can make the changes within that context. The real problem that we have is not a money problem. If you look at how much money Canada spends, it's the highest in the world. If you look at how much money Alberta spends, it's the highest in Canada or among the highest. And we're just not getting good results. This is not a money issue at all. It's a structure issue. And that's okay. why well, I appointed an official administrator and dismissed the board that is managing our monopoly that we've given Alberta Health Services to. And we're we're working day by day to identify some of the roadblocks to making some of the changes we know need to be done to improve ambulance service, to improve the flow through emergency rooms, to reduce the surgical backlog. He's only been on the job two weeks, Dr. John Cowell, but he's already identified, I think, some some really important innovations that we're going to make. So changing healthcare is going to be incremental. I know I'm going to be judged in the next election on whether or not if somebody gets picked up in an ambulance, are they are they waiting 22 ambulances in line behind 21 in front of them? Are they waiting 29 hours in the emergency rooms? That's the system I inherited, and it's unacceptable. We can't have that any longer. No, we can't. And it happens far too frequently in this country now. We have hundreds of thousands of surgeries that have been delayed. We have cancer patients who can't get their chemo or their radiation treatments. It's, It's a terrible, terrible reality. One more question for you. You told me when we spoke previously that you see the possibility of other Western provinces engaging with Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, which it has with the Saskatchewan First Act, to form a regional alliance, if you will, against federal, I don't know, manipulation, my word, of Western Canadian interests. Do you still see that possibility? 
I'm, I'm beginning to think that we might have another alliance forming in Atlantic Canada. I've been, I've been uh, quite impressed with Tim Houston coming up and just talking about how devastating the federal carbon tax is going to be to his province. And, and for a province like Alberta, we have the means to be able to handle those kinds of increases and be able to offset them. We're in the middle of a, a major affordability package right now that has, re- that has eliminated our 13 cent Fuel tax is a way of offsetting these prices, but but small provinces like uh, like Nova Scotia and, and Newfoundland and Labrador they can't necessarily do that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we've got a federal government that's allowing Quebec to have a lower retail carbon tax than than the rest of us. So I'm looking at that, saying, is that constitutional? Can can the federal government? pick and choose favorites and decide to treat one province differently than the rest, okay. make the rest of us have higher prices. So I, I think we might have a, a regional coalition in in uh, Western Canada for sure, but I'm watching to see if maybe there's a, a great partner for us to have in Atlantic Canada too. Just looking at an Instagram post by uh, Kerry Price. It's making the rounds everywhere on social media. Legendary goaltender for the Montreal Canadiens, First Nations, British Columbia, and Carey Price is wearing his hunting gear, and he has a shotgun. And Mr. Medicino, he's holding it properly, carefully. And not like a hockey stick. He's holding it like he holds a shotgun. I love my family, um, writes Carey. I love my country, and I care for my neighbor. I'm not a criminal or a threat to society. What that Justin Trudeau is trying to do is unjust. I support the CCFR underscore CCDAF to keep my hunting tools. Carrie Price, number 31, with the Montreal Canadiens to the Prime Minister. It's a pretty direct message. But here we are, and we're talking about this uh, firearms legislation that the Liberals are insisting. They, uh, well, Mr. Mendicino, the public safety minister, what's the headline here? No intention whatsoever of banning long guns, hunting rifles, Mendicino. So, uh, I'm sort of racking my brain here because shotguns and hunting rifles are on the list. And I don't know, Minister, but they're the ones that are used for hunting. uh, And and I just, I hate to correct the Prime Minister. He he talks about, I'm going to have a play it for me. Just hang hang on. Just listen to what the Prime Minister says about what firearms are used for. Once again, we see the extent to which the Conservative Party of Canada is in the pocket of the gun lobby. Uh, We will continue to move forward in responsible ways while respecting uh, the choices of uh, law-abiding hunters and fishers and people who use guns responsibly. So I just wanted to be sure to point out that people actually don't go fishing with firearms. Mr. Trudeau seems to believe they do. But it's usually uh, one of those long sticks that has some sort of nylon cord coming off the other end, and it's got a reel on it. That's what you go fishing with. Rod Geltaka is the CEO and executive director of the Coalition for Firearms Rights, and that's the organization Carrie Price mentioned. Rod, how are you? I'm doing well, Roy. How are you? Good. You don't go fishing with a shotgun, do you? I'm not a fisherman, but I I know that some fishermen do just to protect themselves against bears because when they haul a big salmon up out of the river, that's an that's an easy grab for a bear that might be uh, lurking around. Yeah, but they don't, don't they don't fish the fish with the shotgun. They, they I yeah, I don't themselves. think you're allowed to do that actually. No, I don't think so either. What's the uh, CCFR's view of the current federal federal firearms initiative? And um, Mr. Medicino says, what do you say? No intention whatsoever of banning long guns and hunting rifles. 
Well, I think you know, as, as uh, I've been I've been around a few years, Roy, and I've never seen um, a government, and uh, as long as I've been alive, that uh, that, and I, I'm not a big fan of hyperbolic language, but the gaslights people at the level that this government does um, everything that they're doing, literally everything. Uh, affects directly affects hunters and sports shooters, um, law-abiding and only licensed uh, gun owners. So it's you know they say they they say one thing and do com- something completely different. Let's talk about who these licensed law-abiding gun owners are, and let's talk about the people first who have the the unrestricted firearms, the long guns, the shotguns, and the rifles, and what they have to go through in order to be licensed to possess these firearms. Just remind us, please, Rod, of what's necessary. Sure. Um, so to basically the, the way the law is written, no one in Canada can possess a firearm unless they have a license, and that excuses them from the criminal charges associated with that. And to get that, basically, you have to have um, no criminal record, certainly no violence, no drug offenses, no domestic violence, that kind of thing. Then you have to take a uh, one- or two-day safety course, depending on the firearms that you want to own. Then you have to pass that course with 80% or more. Then you can apply for a license. Um, you get a, a criminal background check. Uh, you have to disclose um, any uh, recent job losses, medications, uh, medical um, history. And you have to come up with uh, two people who have known you three years or longer as references. And if you're married, your spouse has to sign off. And if you're not married, you have to list all of your conjugal partners for the last two years plus their contact information. And then you may be granted a license after about, I don't know, four to six months is typical, how long it takes. And at that point, and this is something that not a lot of Canadians know, you're enrolled in a, in a program called continuous eligibility screening, meaning that your name is compared to the CPIC database, which is the Canadian Police Information Center, um, every 24 hours. So even if you've had a license for 10 years, let's say, or 11 years, if you got into trouble and it was something it was a violent offense or something that would be a concern uh, for you to have firearms, the Canadian Firearms Program would notify the chief firearms officer of your province and they would contact you to see what happened last night or, you know, two days ago and determine whether or not you should have your guns taken away. So firearms are among the most um, highly regulated property in our country. And people, firearms owners, are among the most law-abiding in the country because they understand, not only because of the te- because of the test and because of all the requirements to obtain a license, but they just understand the significance of owning a firearm. Now, why do you suppose, Rod? Why are the liberals doing this? Is why? Well, I think there's a there's a number of competing motivations here. One is there's um, this is this is really not the the liberal party. Like I used to vote liberal, right? I voted for Jean Chrétien. I voted for Paul Martin. These are these are an entirely different group of people with an entire entirely different ideological outlook on what Canada is. So it's it's really difficult for me to listen to them even be called liberals. Um, <laughs> I'm a liberal, you know. So it's uh it's it, that's difficult, but they. These folks have an ideological objection to anyone owning a firearm. They also see a political advantage um, in in demonizing licensed firearm owners, blaming them for the, the liberals' um, failure on uh, on keeping Canadians safe. As you are probably aware, over the last seven years of liberal rule and at the same time increasing firearm regulation, 
gang activity, gang violence is up 92% and violent crime is up 32%. I didn't realize 92% for gangs. Wow. 92%. So the more gun control, you know, I, I, it, there's no correlation here, but no. the more gun control that they've, uh, they've rolled out right, right all the way back from Bill C-71 when they first, uh, when, when um, yeah. Ralph Goodale was Minister of Public Safety, um, Canada has become less safe. So it's um, they're blaming their, they want to lay their fa- their failures at the feet of licensed gun owners to escape accountability, and at the same time they they convince Canadians that licensed gun owners are a threat, and uh, divide Canadians so that that uh, that their voters think you know what the only way I can stop these evil gun owners is to vote liberal next time around. So that's, there's that's there's, what's going on. There's no doubt in your mind that hunting rifles and shotguns used for hunting these are on the list, no question. Well, no question, of course, and and uh, again, right? I know it sounds ridiculous, but we have to clarify. Well, well, yeah, and and you can look. This is the thing: Canadians can, can go look at that list. You know, Mendicino says that don't believe the lies. We're not banning any hunting guns, and you know, the gun lobby's trying to gaslight you. And it's like, well, the list is public; anyone can go look at it. So it's a it's a strange time in Canadian history, Roy. Chiefs of police aren't too enthusiastic about this either, are they? That's that's true, and many of them have uh, testified during the hearings for Bill C-21 and, and said just as much. How quickly do you expect the government to act? Uh, it'll become apparent very quickly what firearms are there are, even if people don't go to the list, once they start to be uh, confiscated. Well, the confiscation part, honestly, the confiscation part is the tricky part. Right now, it costs the liberals nothing to just ban all these guns and make them illegal. And of course, people like me have been sitting here with the guns that were banned back in May 2020, still sitting in my gun safe. I haven't been able to lay a hand on them for um, coming up three years for for no good reason. There's no reason I can't just take them to the range in the interim while they decide what to do with them or roll out their buyback. But when they do these things, Roy, it costs the liberals nothing. They get their wedge issued like they wanted to. They get this big political firestorm like they want to, to distract from all their failures and corruption. I think we all are well aware of that. And, uh, and it hasn't cost them nothing. So they could, they could drag gun owners along for a decade by saying there's a buyback coming any day now. And, and they haven't had to, to, to peel off a dollar out of the, out of the cost. So the, uh, the person, <laughs> really the, the, the person to look at, as far as the gun owners are concerned, legal gun owners in this country are concerned, have a look at Carrie Price. On Instagram, zero zero was it zero zero thirty one? I think at zero 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 thirty one. Rod, thank you so much uh, for joining us. So, a petition. What what are you doing to uh, to to help uh, gun owners challenge this? Well, we are suing the federal government in the largest uh, lawsuit uh, on behalf of gun owners in the history of the country. It's uh, it's been pretty big. Our hearing is coming up in April. So I'm hoping to uh, to get a favorable ruling from the judge. Uh, but we do all kinds of things. Uh, we have television shows and uh, studies and documentaries and all the rest of that stuff. People can find us at firearmrights.ca to support us. News release from Safeguard Defenders in Spain today. And uh, the headline is Patrol and Persuade. It's about an international network between China and European nations 
including Italy and concerning so-called Chinese police stations in those nations. We have them here in Canada as well, and we're going to talk to our guests about both the situation in Europe and the situation in this country. Laura Harth is campaign director for Safeguard Defenders, and they monitor Chinese open source documentation and have identified four different police jurisdictions in China's Ministry of Public Security, active in at least 53 countries. That's a lot of countries, and... um, and a lot of police stations. Laura, thank you for joining us. What surprises me, it really, really surprised me, is that in European in uh, European countries, the national governments are quite often cooperatively working with China and those Chinese police stations. What's the story? Mm-hmm. Well, hi, Roy, and, and thank you for having me. So there's, there's various parts to the so- story. Uh, obviously, you, you cited the CNN uh, exclusive on it that came out this morning and uh, happy to announce that the full report will be available soon on Safeguard Defenders website. So uh, obviously inviting all listeners to, to go and have a look at it tomorrow morning also for novelties regarding Canada, uh, where obviously our previous reports from September have been taken very serious uh, by the government. Uh, by law enforcement, members of parliament and, and media. So thank you for that. Now, coming to your question, what's the situation in Europe? I wouldn't go as far as say that we have concrete evidence at this point that the European authorities, at least in a number of countries, actively worked with these stations. That is so an open question. There is definitely some evidence that, that points to that um, possibly or that points at least to an naivete in in treating um, in dealing with these kind of issues. What is very clear from what we describe in in the report that will be out shortly is that the kind of bilateral cooperation agreements with the Ministry of Public Security uh, in China or for other countries such as Australia with the Central Commission for Disciplinary Inspection may well have played and continue to play a big role in these uh, transnational repression and policing efforts that the CCP is mounting around the world. What can you tell us, Laura, about the situation in Canada with the Chinese uh, police stations, and they're, uh, for the most part, in the greater Toronto area, but what can you tell us about what's going on? So I can't go into too much detail uh, on, on the new report, but I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone that we did find uh, more stations, including in, in, in Canada, among the 48 newly identified ones. Um, these include stations by public security bureaus from counties that we had not previously identified in our uh, September report. Now, I don't think the situation in Canada is very different from other countries where there's big Chinese overseas communities, people that for various reasons have left China uh, over the years and which we know the Chinese Communist Party seeks to control in in every manner, uh, including through these kind of persuasion to return operations uh, using harassment, threats, detention, intimidation of family members back home or directly intimidating a target abroad to force them to return to China against their will. Uh, We've long reported, and other human rights organizations, uh, activists themselves from the communities have long reported on these kind of threats and harassment operations being carried out against them, often by people linked to the United Front Work Department that is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, which we know is active around the world and which obviously is closely tied to these overseas uh, police service stations. 
So I wouldn't say that the situation in Canada per se is so different from what the CCP is trying to do anywhere in the world. Uh, but for sure, the Canadian government, as many governments around the world, have too long been lacking in, in looking into this and in, in finding an adequate response to this um, very, very real domestic threat that is heavily impacting freedoms and fundamental rights of people in Canada as around the world. Yeah, you know, when 53 countries are in, involved, and I, and I completely appreciate that you can tell us about the report, which is now, yet yeah, this is a news release mm-hmm. we were talking about, but China has claimed its police stations are there only to assist Chinese citizens or expats in obtaining documentation like a driver's license. And the locations, they say, were established during COVID to assist Chinese citizens stranded overseas. That's in your news release. That's what consulates and embassies are for. And to uh, to, to try to, mm-hmm. uh, well, let's use the word persuade, um, citizens or expats to go back to China with their families there threatened if you don't go. That is something that each individual government has to has to review and be responsible for. And I, I thank you for the work that you do at uh, Safeguard Defenders. Look, I look forward to reading the report. What's uh, to remind us, please, what the website is? So the website is safeguarddefenders.com and um, the report should be up shortly after midnight in Europe tonight, so that's about 6 p.m. Canadian time. NANO's polling reveals healthcare has surpassed inflation and jobs as Canadians' greatest issue of concern. Interestingly, the poll did not offer respondents choices, so it was, what's your biggest concern? And healthcare came up number one. Still have approximately 5 million Canadians with no primary care physician. Hundreds of thousands of surgeries have been postponed or canceled, and we're hearing even cancer patients are forced to forego chemo and radiation therapy because of the numbers of patients waiting for care. It is a broken health care system, and we've spoken with our guests now oh, for the last number of years about this issue. Dr. Catherine Smart is the past president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, uh, the system was in great duress when you and I first started speaking a couple of years ago. Is the situation any better now, or is it just as bad as it was, was or even worse? You know, unfortunately, I, I think things are continuing to decline, which is not what either of us want to be talking about, I don't think. You know, we're seeing, you know, of course, right now the pediatric health care crisis, but ongoing pressures in emergency departments, both for children and adults across the country, growing backlogs, ongoing for surgery, diagnostic imaging, ongoing loss of providers from primary care, um, and, and, you know, worsening burnout and moral injury amongst providers. So I think the story is the same story. It's just things are seem to be getting worse and, and not better. So when we hear the stories of somebody going to an emergency room and coming away dissatisfied uh, and, and just generally unhappy and feeling still not any better, and we hear about cancer patients being denied their treatments, chemo and radiation, these are these story, and, and, and surgeries being postponed or canceled, these are all happening on a daily basis, yes? Oh, absolutely. That is happening on a daily basis, and it's it's tragedy. I mean... I can't imagine how it feels to be that patient who's, mm-hmm. you know, been sitting in an emergency department for 20 hours waiting an assessment or in the hallway for three days sick, admitted to hospital, yeah. you know, having a diagnosis of cancer and waiting days, weeks, months uh, for care, having your surgery canceled for the second or third time. And and I also know what it's like to be the provider who has to deliver that news to people, uh, you know, who's working relentlessly around the clock trying to make sure everyone's getting cared for. It's it's no one's winning right now. And it, it's 
real a real tragedy, I think, that we're facing. So, so give us the uh, the physician's perspective, your perspective from your side of the stethoscope. Bad joke, sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I think what, I, what what I'm experiencing and what I'm hearing from colleagues is is just I think this ongoing sense of hopelessness in terms of you know when are we going to see some real solutions or and, and plans about what comes next, right? I think none of us are naive. We've all been in the system for a long time. We've seen the the decline. It was starting before the pandemic, and of course now it's been made worse by the pandemic. But I don't think any of us think that the solutions are are necessarily simple. But what we want to see is is a plan and and at least an attempt to start working towards some of the things that we've put on the table. You know, there's several ideas out there at the Canadian Medical Association. We've advanced multiple uh, ideas, including things like pan-Canadian licensure. You know, let's invest in integrated team-based care. Let's let's do some of these things. But of course, the problem is we haven't actually seen any significant government commitment or action on any of these files. And I think that's what's so hard is when you can see you know, how bad it is in front of you, but you don't actually see anyone kind of coming up to the plate to, to take that next step and to take some risks in terms of trying something different. Yeah. The paralysis of analysis, or at least, you know, not helping, not not working together to create a solution for the patients of this country. And, and, and the patients are increasing in numbers and the, uh, and the situation, as you are sharing with us, becomes more dire on a daily basis. Um, do you have hope that we're going to be able to, you know, see the proverbial light at the end of the proverbial tunnel before too much longer? Well, you know, I, I do have some hope. And the main source of my hope really comes from the people I work with. You know, that healthcare is full of incredible people. And I think you hear that from Canadians, even people yes. right now who are facing these horrible wait times. When they do get care, so many people comment just on how kind people were, how much they could see everybody trying. I mean, those are the type of people that are within the system. Um, and I think we're seeing lots of people come forward with ideas. We're seeing people pivoting, you know, administration leaders in our health systems, pivoting the resources they have in creative ways to try to meet the demand. So the people themselves that deliver the care have not given up. Um, so I think there is hope on the horizon. I think a lot of the ideas we're advancing could make substantial change. And I do think sometimes, you know, things really have to hit rock bottom before change happens. And I feel like that's where we are. So if ever there was an opportunity for the Canadian healthcare system to be transformed, I think it's right now. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.